Welcome to the Anxiety Slayer Podcast. I'm Shan Vanderleek. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Are stress and anxiety interfering with your happiness? Have you been considering seeing a therapist, but you're not sure where to start? BetterHelp will assess your counseling needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so you can start getting the support you need online in under 24 hours. And there's a special for Anxiety Slayer listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash slayer. That's betterhelp.com forward slash slayer. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Margaret is a clinical psychologist with 25 years of experience who works with people who are battling perfectionism. She's the host of the Self Work podcast and author of Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And Margaret is no stranger to anxiety and panic attacks, as she'll tell you when we get started with our conversation. Welcome to Anxiety Slayer, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you, Shan. Yeah, I uh, have had panic disorder since my middle to late 20s, so I am quite accustomed to managing it. I can't can't forget, I will never forget the first therapist that said, you know, you may not like your anxiety, but you're going to have to learn to like it and acknowledge it as just as much a part of you as the part that you don't mind other people saying. So that's when I learned um, that I Actually, it's given me a lot of gifts, a lot of humility and a lot of gratitude. So um, I I am a I'm not a happy anxiety experiencer, but (laughs) but I uh, gosh, I've it's 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 been around for so long. I'm not sure what I do without it at this point. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and you you've learned to live with it, embrace it, be with it. And with your profession and your writing and all that you're doing to support others. Um, you know, this is a, this is a beautiful thing when we can take our own experiences and then share them with the world and and help other people. And I imagine that's part of what inspired you to write perfectly hidden depression. I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about the inspiration and then also the relationship between perfection and depression and shame. Sure. You know, as a clinician, I learned that and in graduate school, I learned certainly about perfectionism, but I also always heard it correlated with anxiety, that when you have a perfect-looking person in front of you, that's what you want to help them with. But back in 2014, I was writing my weekly blog post, and I was thinking, Shan, about some of the people that I'd seen over the years that kind of came in and were somewhat sheepish, saying, you know, don't really know why I'm here, I have a little bit of anxiety, I, I know I'm a workaholic, I... Um, and really dedicated to my family and my friends, and and I'm very grateful for the success I have in my life, but something just seems off. I'm, I don't even know what it is. In fact, I feel a little silly being here. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed about these people as a group was that they also, when they began recounting their histories, that they would talk about what I would consider and mental health would consider traumas either big T's or little T's, depending on how you talk about it. But Mm -hmm. still, there were things like multiple moves in your childhood or having an alcoholic mother or being raped or a a myriad of things. And they would talk about it sort of with a smile on their face. And I I would say to them, you know, if I turned the, the audio down, 
he would I would think he would maybe be talking to me about what you did last night for fun. Um, there's no painful emotion coming from you, and they kind of laugh and say, well, I'm just not a crier, or, oh, gosh, I don't even consider that trauma. Those are just little things that happen. Kind of like matter of fact, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's very yeah. analytical, very analytical. And so I was just thinking about those people, and I picked a term out of the air, and I said, the perfectly hidden depressed person, are you one? And I tried to describe those folks. Well, at that time, a post might have 50 shares if I were lucky, and this went viral. And then when it was on the Huffington Post uh, about a week later, I got hundreds of emails. So the, so the topic sort of found me. Uh, I had never wanted to write a book. I never had any aspirations to be an author. I love being a therapist. But the more I looked into the literature, of course, I found Dr. Brene Brown, who works so, uh, who writes so eloquently about perfection, perfectionism and shame and vulnerability. And then I found Terrence Reel, who wrote a book about covert depression for men. But it was only in the scholarly literature that I began seeing that people were talking about this link between a perfect-looking life actually acting as a mask for a very silent and potent depression. And the, the academic research shows you that as perfectionism rises in our culture and internationally, so does suicidality. And right. so I was challenged by my friends, by, by the people who were reading my material on my website, and we're saying this makes a lot of sense. I think this is me. I got more me emails. I got people volunteering to talk to me anonymously about the loneliness and despair they were feeling that they always had to hide um, and that no one knew them. And that really was so such a difficult life to live. Oh, yeah. And then also when you couple that with doing absolutely everything you can to be perfect so that you can't be judged to exactly. show up in such a way that that you know that you're bulletproof and of course I'm speaking from my own experience I'm I'm a recovering <laughs> perfectionist there you go <laughs> my name is Shan Vanderleek and I am a recovering perfectionist <laughs> and you know, so even the even the publishing houses that turned it down uh because I, no one knew who I was right and, so they were worried about that, and they didn't think anybody would buy a book on perfectionism that was hiding. But the third thing they'd always say to me, Shan, was, you know, we hope this book gets published because I'm just like this. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> there's so many of us. And and I suspect now, too, it's compounded by the fact that we live in a social media-driven society where yes. everyone is just, you know, showing their... their um, polished side or yeah, that highlight like reel and and then uh, as opposed to what's really happening uh, the the messy part of being human because it is both glorious and messy and that vulnerability is such a key part I know it's been a key part of my own healing in the way that I show up is to be exactly who I am and where I am in the moment versus trying to give you this perfect, picture this or this, this polished the, version yeah the polished version of shan and like uh-uh that's that's not uh what a relief to let that go it is and you know i want to make the distinction between what i would call high functioning depression or smiling depression because this is a group who knows they are depressed they actually meet criteria mm -hmm. for clinical depression but they are pretty dedicated to 
uh, putting that polished facade out there, and they really can do a somewhat uh, weirdly good job of hiding how depressed they are. Yeah. But again, they're seeking treatment. They are on medications or they're getting a lot of exercise or they're, they're taking uh, vitamins or some sort of supplements to try to help them. And right. they can ask for help. Right. But the people that I'm mostly trying to reach are the people that this process has become so automatic and so unconscious as they for years have very rigidly compartmentalized their pain. Uh, I had a woman tell me one time, you know, if I don't have a big enough box to put a feeling in that I don't want to have, I build a bigger box. And then I think there are also some people who never feel, they never, there's wonderful work by Lisa Feldman Garrett, I believe was her last name, maybe Barrett. I just learned about her last week and I ordered her book. It's about how sometimes when we don't have an experience of an emotion, we literally cannot feel it. Right. It doesn't have a context. And so our, our neural pathways that help us to help the brain form what that emotion is. So I think it's fascinating. And by this time, I've worked with so many people who have come to my practice because of this. And I've talked to hundreds of people. Um, one person, of course, said to me, well, if I'm a clinician, how can I tell that this is going on with someone if they don't tell me? Right. And that is obviously the sticky wicket of this. However, I like to think of it as somewhat similar to what happened in uh, the cardiology world when all the research was done on men. And so their symptoms of a heart attack, which were warning signs, a woman would come in and say, well, I've got some back pain or I've got this or the other. They say, well, that's not a symptom of a heart attack. It's no problem. Because they were basing it on the, the research with men. Right, right. When they started researching women, they understood that that picture could be very different. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make parents and teachers and doctors and mental health professionals and, and partners aware that there is a presentation of depression that is not going to fit the classic criteria for depression. No one's going to be looking at these people and say, gosh, you look really tired. Or, you know what, I your, your best friend moved away and you haven't even acted like you were sad or whatever it happens to be. Right. And that the ones that we think are so strong. Right, right. That are shouldering so much and they're just so, you know, almost stoic sometimes. Exactly. And so if you have another way of understanding, wait, 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 there's a there's a different picture of this kind of depression that can be very misleading. And in fact, if you don't ask the right questions, you won't ever find out what's happening. I had a man, the stories in the book, one of my volunteers said that he had actually gone to a psychiatrist and he'd handed him a Beck depression inventory, most likely. And one of the questions was, do you feel hopeless? And he answered no. And he said, and then three weeks later, he tried to die by suicide. And the actual, the psychiatrist came to see him and said, well, but you were just in my office three weeks ago. I asked if you felt hopeless. And he looked at him and said, you asked me the wrong question. Mm. The question had been, if you feel hopeless, would you ever tell anyone? The answer would still, the honest answer would still be no. No. And so you would have this, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? And that's what I'm trying to learn how to do myself over the years. 
and I'm eager for other therapists and other mental health professionals and doctors and everyone. And again, just people who love other people right? <laughs> to recognize that sometimes it's the last thing you think about that someone was depressed. Right. Oh, such powerful work you're doing. And, and the book is incredibly helpful and, and storytelling is always very helpful. I'd, I'd love to know more about the changes that you've seen in your own practice with your own uh, clients uh, and, and how you've seen a shift now that you uh, have kind of clued into the questions that need to be asked. Yes, it's it's mainly a huge light bulb goes on for me because these people are these people are pretty distrustful of the therapy process. They really don't know why they're there and they feel almost ashamed of being there. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of look at you suspiciously, not like paranoia suspicious, but just, okay, what's she going to ask me next? And it's this, it's this disjunct, if that's a word, between, I don't think it is, but I just made it up, <laughs> between, between what they're saying and their ability to connect or express that emotion. Um, and if I see that it's not there or they laugh things off or they... They'll say things like, um, well, I've already said, they'll, they'll say things like, I really don't know why I'm here. I feel a little silly. Mm-hmm. And, um, but th- this got my attention or something. Um, but what I see when these people gradually, cautiously begin to trust the relationship enough to say, well, maybe I should tell you about this. Maybe, maybe when um, I was sexually abused by my grandfather, you know, I knew he loved me, but then he did these things to me that I've never talked about. Mm-hmm. And I will look at them, Shan, and say, and you know what? You're in charge right now of how much you share with me. I'm going to ask you questions, but if you can't answer them or you're uncomfortable answering, answering them, just tell me you're not ready. So right. I give them lots of control over how fast therapy goes. And generally speaking, just that permission helps them to begin to open up more. Oh, yeah. Um, And there's so much that is underneath the surface that thankfully when they when they do come for help and and you do build that trust, all of a sudden these these areas that have been hidden or unconscious or however you want to label that do do come up like, oh, my goodness, that was abuse or that was and, you know, almost like these light bulbs that go off where they realize, oh, my goodness, I've just been kind of stuffing all of that down. Right, right. I had a man, this was just a very dramatic example. I had a man telling me about his childhood. Now, I'll give you a little of his history. He had he'd been very successful, worked very hard. But when he retired, he fell apart. He began drinking a lot. He actually came in with his wife first because his marriage was falling apart and he, he liked what I said. And um, so he came back as an individual and he was telling me that his mother used to scream at him and throw rocks at him and tell him that he wasn't going to amount to anything. Oh my goodness. And so, and just laughing, laughing, laughing. And I said, you know, you have a grandchild, right? And I, he said, yes, I do. I have two or three. I said, so let's just pick one of them, put them out in my yard and let's go get some rocks. Yeah. And throw at them yeah, and right. say, yeah, this is funny, isn't it? 
And he goes, well, of course it wouldn't be funny. And I looked at him and said, why are you laughing? Because you were that young boy. And he got this look on his face like he'd never imagined something like that. And that's what those kinds of realizations come with, again, trust and with slow work mm-hmm. and with just trying to help them understand. You know, the, the other thing that is so scary for these people is that perfectionism has been their constant go-to. Right. They are known to be good decision makers, to be able to get things done quickly and efficiently, to always volunteer. They are wonderful friends. They just don't let anybody into them. Right. But And they say, but... I'll lose my strength. I'll lose my power. I'll lose my reputation if I begin to change this. And that's a huge hurdle to the work because first they have to understand that their perfectionism has gotten to a destructive level. There's constructive perfectionism. There are people who really innately want to do well. I probably count myself in that group. They uh, work hard. They are, uh, if they're a swimmer, for example, they are wanting to beat their best time. And if they don't, they kind of go, ah, well, maybe next time. A destructive perfectionist won't just try to beat their best time. They want to beat everybody else. And uh-huh. if they don't, what they are facing is shame and fear and these inner voices of incredible self-loathing and criticism that they constantly have to prove wrong. And so the motivation behind the perfectionism is very different for someone who uses it constructively and someone who uses it destructively. Right, right. Well, when we come back from our break, I want to talk to you a little bit about the kind of people that you see and whether or not it's come to the to the table that, or not to the table, but if it's something that can be proven that creative people are at the higher end of of this scenario. You bet. Today's Anxiety Slayer podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Are stress and anxiety interfering with your happiness and preventing you from living your best life? There have been a few times in my life where I've needed some extra support and wish I'd had an option for online support. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. To be clear, BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online, and their service is available for clients worldwide. You get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so that you don't have to leave the comfort of your own home. It's more affordable than traditional in-person counseling, and financial aid is available. You can start living a happier life today. The special offer for Anxiety Slayer listeners is that you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash slayer. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash slayer. Before the break, we were talking about some of the clients that you've talked with and some of the different stories and, and things that come up in a session that help you identify perfectionism and depression. And I wondered if creative people, if creatives were on the higher end of that spectrum, and that's what I was trying to to think of before uh, we left. And, and are they more susceptible to this perfectionism and, and uh, depression? 
you know, when I wrote the book, Shan, I really had not considered that, but I was reached, uh, but Chris Doe, who is a, a huge YouTuber, reached out to me. His whole business is trying to help creatives with their entrepreneurship, and he has great ideas, and he and I had an hour and a half long discussion about this, and it's true, because think about being creative. I mean, I used to be a jingle singer. I used to be a professional musician. And, you know, the the ambiguity of the product is truly in other people's eyes and ears. And you are, you may be a, a wonderful painter or sculptor or, or singer or dancer, but you knowing or you feeling as if your product, your end product is what you want it to be is probably you're always pushing yourself to be better. You're always, and, and that can lead to huge procrastination because what is better? Mm-hmm. Is it better in your eyes or is it, you know, you're counting on other people to buy your product or to come see you dance or come hear you sing or whatever it is. And so I think it's about the, you know, in, in the corporate world or in the business world, uh, your supervisor says to you, this is great work. You're getting a promotion. You did it in X amount of time and you, you know, you met all our expectations and you're a wonderful person. So you get lots of immediate feedback on how your perfectionism actually paid off. Sure. But in the artistic world, that's just simply not true. Um, and so I think that creatives have to deal with a lot more of that not knowing, that ambiguity, and so really come up in and of themselves with a way of what I said with Chris Doe that I hope was helpful was that the product can't be as important as the process. I love that. So let's say that again, the product product can't be as important important as the process of what you're creating and that you are a creator. And so, you know, people will either buy your product or won't. Um, But if, if you focus on the process, uh, it's kind of like that swimmer Mm -hmm. who just wants to be better him or herself. And so, and what better means in the creative world is you take risks and you, and you, and you push and you grow and you pull and you, you, you are always wanting to investigate and you're curious and you discover that's the magic of creativity. And so I really believe that creatives, uh, have to commit or it's better, it's healthier if they commit to the process. And then, you know, someone comes along and just loves a sculpt, a, a a sculpture that they did and they think, mm, I did that two years ago and I'm not all that wild about it anymore. Yeah. But you know, that's not really for you, for you to decide. Um, it's in the eye of the beholder, as I said. So right. I, uh, I had a lot of trouble with that as, as a professional uh, vocalist. Actually, therapy is not <laughs> very different from that. Therapy <laughs> is a very creative process. Sure. It's, it's part science, but it's also very much part art. And so you're always risking and trying to grow and believing in your, the process of, of the therapy itself. If, if perfectionism is becoming a debilitating issue for someone, for some of our listeners, for instance, yes. what, what can they do? How can they 
break free from that feeling of being so stuck? Well, the consciousness that it is a problem is a huge step. You know, the publishing house that bought the book, I had just been describing this. I thought that would make a wonderful book. And they looked at me and said, oh, no, you have to come up with a treatment strategy and you've mm-hmm. got two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it had taken me two years to write the part of the book they were looking at. I thought two weeks. But I really started thinking about what I do with every patient I see. And let's say it's bipolar disorder or social anxiety or whatever the, uh, the issue is. They first have to admit to themselves and own that th- it's a problem for them. It's creating some havoc in their lives. And so that's a huge step with perfectionism, especially, obviously, destructive perfectionism. And the more they see that, the more they can begin to understand that really there are whole parts of themselves that are rigidly compartmentalized away from their awareness that are important for them to try to connect with so that their lives can be more uh, more open and more free, you know. Uh, Andrew Solomon has a wonderful quote that he says, the opposite of depression is, isn't is happiness, it's vitality. And I borrowed that structure and said the, the, um, the antidote or the opposite of perfectly hidden depression is self-acceptance, meaning mm. that you don't believe that your vulnerabilities define you any more than your strengths. And what a gift that is yes. when you get to that... I remember having that insight for the first time and being completely and beautifully supported by a circle of women when I did. Yes. And that I just didn't need to be that, um, that warrior anymore, that I didn't need to be, um, always on, always diligent, always in that space and, and to to just, oh, to exhale and, and be completely <laughs> accepted and my both, you know, both my acceptance and, and sure. theirs to be witnessed was just, wow. My so powerful example is that, you know, I have three letters after my name and that's lovely. I'm very proud of them. PhD. Mm-hmm. But I also have had three marriages. Now the last one has lasted 30 years, so that's not bad, but <laughs> you know, but really, okay. Three letters, three marriages. I'm not proud of the latter. Certainly not. But neither one of those facts define me any no. more than the other do. No. So that's the message that I want to try to help people understand who are so committed and painfully committed to putting out this facade of what they think is perfect looking because you just don't have to do it. You know, when I began writing on social media about my panic disorder, my history of anorexia and my divorces, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to lose a bunch of people because who wants to come to a therapist who has all these problems? <laughs> yeah. But quite the opposite. People would write me and say, I'm so glad you're being transparent. Yes. It's a model for me, and I'm going to try to be more transparent myself. It's everything. If anything, if anything, I respect you more because of what you're allowing others to see about yourself. Right on. Well, as we come to a close today, Margaret, which our time just went by so quickly, <laughs> is there anything additional that you would like to leave our listeners with? Mainly that I, with the people that I have worked with, I don't mean to say this in a dramatic fashion, but more than one have said, 
when I walked in your door, I had the plan to end my life. Mm. And now I can't even imagine doing that. The dangers of this are incredibly potent. In fact, I had someone reach out to me three months ago. One of her friends died by suicide and her husband found my book on her nightstand. Hmm. So this is important to pay attention to because it truly can have tragic, tragic circumstances Hmm. or consequences, I should say. Sure, sure. Well, I'm so grateful to you for writing the book, for doing the work that you're doing, for showing up in full transparency and helping as many as you do. And thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of Anxiety Slayer. Thank you, Shan. That was Dr. Margaret Rutherford. You can get a copy of her book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, wherever books are sold. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. As a friend of Anxiety Slayer, you'll get access to over 40 guided meditations and extra resources for calming anxiety. Visit patreon.com forward slash anxiety slayer.